Disclaimer information in this episode is not nor is intended to be legal advice. Contact an attorney to obtain advice regarding your individual needs. morning, good evening, good night, wherever or whoever you may be. I am Alan Arante, and this is The Recluse Podcast. Today's guest is Caitlin Rodriguez. She is a lawyer based in Ventura, California. She practices family law and estate planning. That would include things like divorce, child support, wills, and property transfers. She graduated with a bachelor's degree in history from Cal State Channel Islands, and she went on to Western School of Law in San Diego. In this conversation, we talk about her law school experience and what it was like to take the bar exam. Caitlin reflects on her internship with the Public Defender's Office in San Diego. She considers whether or not a lawyer can ever take off the lawyer cap, a reality described by Anita Hill. Hill says, One of the things I was taught in law school is that I'd never be able to think the same again, that being a lawyer is something that's a part of who I am as an individual now. And that seemed to be a feeling that Caitlin has. She talks about how she makes an effort to separate her personal and professional life, but that the two often blend together. Caitlin Rodriguez, attorney at law, can be found on Instagram at 805lawpractice. And she can be reached through her website at 805lawpractice.com. So without further delay, this is a portrait of Caitlin Rodriguez. Do you separate your your personal life from your uh, profession or are you just always in lawyer mode? I try my best to separate, um, but it's really hard. I mean, as far as that quote goes, um, I would say that it is true. And honestly, for me personally, it tends to come up in kind of, um, you know, I guess I would say annoying ways where, you know, for (laughs) example, you could just be having a conversation with someone at the dog park and they tell you something about, uh, you know, oh yeah, my neighbor, you know, their dog bit me and my mind automatically goes into like, (laughs) you know, is this the first time the dog has bit, bitten someone? Is this so it, and same thing was with like television shows, like, If there's a courtroom scene, it's like, oh, my God, that's totally unrealistic because I know what (laughs) is supposed to be going on. So I guess in in ways it yes, it it has it does surface in my own life. And it, um, you know, I would say sometimes it's kind of annoying because it is difficult to completely just shut off the lawyer mind. So my dad had told me right before starting law school that law school, basically all it's doing is teaching you how to think like a lawyer. And then that then permeates into your everyday life. So he, I think he was correct in that. 
And you were saying something about how uh, you try to separate your personal life from your um, your professional life and how that do- doesn't always work because obviously you're a person and our these areas in our lives, um, they blend together. And it makes me think of, uh, say, a, a doctor, for example, when they have to give uh, a patient uh, bad news or tell them some diagnosis and they seem very removed from the situation and they are just there to relay the information. Um, is that sort of how you feel as a lawyer when you're in certain situations in your professional life? Are you able to distance yourselves from the content of your work? I think I am, but I also think that it's important to not completely distance yourself. I think um, in ways you need to protect yourself emotionally and not get too emotionally involved Um But I also think it's important to show your clients that you do care and not to completely separate. And I think that's sometimes, you know, uh, people don't like lawyers or doctors in the example you give for that reason, you know, that you need to have a good bedside manner. And I think, um, you know, I think that since I have been practicing, that's something that I can tell my clients appreciate about me, where Mm -hmm. I've noticed interactions with other attorneys. Sometimes it's very, like you said, just like, here's the information done where, you know, you like, I mean, they call lawyers counselors because I think part of it is just, you know, being an ear for them, you know to have someone to talk to and, um, you know, confide in about stuff. And you can, a lot of times advice is just regular advice that you would, it's not necessarily legal all the time. Yeah. I I think that's really interesting. Uh, for example, in the, uh, education field, I forget what they call it, but it's sort of, it's something like the, um, the, the untaught curriculum. So teachers, for example, why a lot of teachers go into education is they want to make a difference in kids' lives. They want to be a good role model. They want to be an advocate. And interestingly enough, that stuff isn't taught in the program. We learn about the curriculum. We learn about um, just all these various things. So when you went through your, uh, your law degree, did you, was that sort of was there some hidden curriculum there that they didn't teach you? I mean, are you learning on the job how to be how to console and how to be a counselor? Because you said some lawyers are just cold and just relay the information. That's it. Is that that uh, bedside manner and that rapport that you have to build with a client? Is that something you learn on your own as a lawyer as opposed to in the program? I would say it's more something that you learn on your own. And I think that also it's something that you just learn in the workforce in general. I think, um, you know, I went to law school a little bit later than is the the typical law student. You know, a lot of people go in straight into law school from undergrad and some of those people have never had a job before. And so it's almost like they've (laughs) never even learned how to interact with people, um, you know, in, in any sort of like professional manner. So I think it, 
I think it's just something that you learn, like from working and and working specifically as an attorney. Um, I, you know, prior to law, it's kind of random, but I actually was in the veterinary field for 10 plus years. And that oh, for wow. me, I think that's where I learned how to deal with that, because initially when I started in the field, I was really young and you know, when we'd have a super sick animal or we had to euthanize an animal, I would get so upset by it. And then I was like, okay, I can't do that. I have to be able to be professional. So I completely cut my emotions off. And then eventually I was able to find this happy balance because you know, you walk into a room with clients who are crying because their animal is really sick and you want mm. to be show that you care. And I know that's a completely different field, but I feel like that's where I learned how to wow. interact with clients that way. And in terms of being a lawyer, you're the professional in the room um, with with the client and actually just in general, now that I think about it. What personality traits and characteristics do you think are really essential for a lawyer to be effective and good? I mean, is it um, straightforwardness, responsibility? You know, what are some of the adjectives you would use that a, that a, a lawyer should be described as to be good? I would say that they need to have um, tenacity. Um, I think that they need to have their ducks in a row as far as being on top of things. Um, I think that they, they need to have like, uh, I think that they need to show that they're human as well. Um, because I think that adds value in your ability to be an attorney. Um, like we were just talking about. And then, yeah, I think I, I would say it's easier to have kind of the type A personality um, <laughs> because, you. I, I mean, I've come across attorneys who are not and they're just all over the place and you can tell the clients <laughs> get frustrated and, you know, and all that stuff. And the the attorneys in my experience that seem to be more successful with client relations, at least, are... Um, you know, ones who kind of have that, like they're organized and they're on top of it. So you had, a, I read on your website that you had had some um, interning experience. You worked with San Diego County Alternate Public Defender's Office. W what did you do there and what did you actually, yeah, so what did you do there and at what time was this? Were you in law school at that time or was this post-law school? Yes, yeah, so this was during law school, um, and it was actually the summer, um, I think it was summer 2017, um, I had done a study abroad in Chile, and so I came back and started this internship a little later than some of the other interns, um, and so my time was shorter there, and I basically got to witness one trial from beginning to end. And um, mm. basically, I was just helping my supervising attorney write different motions. Um, and, you know, 
honestly, I went into law school wanting to be a public defender. I thought that I wanted to get into criminal law and this experience, I already knew I would be, I would end up getting too emotionally involved and that I would end up be getting upset by it because the one trial that, um, we did was kind of upsetting and, you know, just Mm. seeing the, the dynamics of, um, how it works, you know, behind the scenes that, you know, the, I remember my supervising attorney talking about how, you know, the, the district attorneys, they are expected to win a case no matter what. (laughs) And if they lose, yeah. And this, you know, I can't, I know this is kind of common in all areas, but I know specifically San Diego County is like this, that he said they'll, they'll literally, if you lose a case, the entire office has a meeting to discuss like, well, what happened? Why did we lose this case? And why, you know, and you know, they just have a lot more resources than the public defender's office. And I don't know. I just don't like that. I I don't think that district attorneys like go into that field because they're bad people. I think that they go into it wanting to get criminals off the street and, you know, people who actually deserve to, um, you know, be punished for certain things that they do. Right. But, I think that once you get into it, you realize that like, oh, my boss is expecting me to win this case and you have to do it no matter what, um, you know, no matter what your personal beliefs are. So I don't know. I just I didn't really like the dynamic of, mm. you know, interacting with the DAs and. I mean, these people's lives are in your hand and, you know, I, I don't know. Like I, yeah, yeah. It's so, a, it's incredibly consequential the way you're making it sound, you know, if you're witnessing this case unfold and you're being supervised by, uh, by this attorney above you, I feel like every pen stroke the guy made is consequential and that's just so much weight. I, I, I can't even fathom it. Yeah. I mean, my, um, my dad was a public defender for Ventura County and he had issues with that. You know, he, mm. he ended up retiring early because he was so, um, you know, so emotionally invested in his clients that it was difficult for him Ugh. to separate. And, you know, it, so I, I commend people who are able to do it and remain emotionally healthy human beings. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So your father was a lawyer. Um, that That's interesting. What, when did you realize that you wanted to go into law? Did your father's um, experience and career put that little, you know, feather in your cap where you thought, hey, maybe I could do it too? So when did you decide to pursue law and what uh, influenced that choice? So I, you know, my whole life, you know, my dad was an attorney. And even when he retired from the public defender's office, 
he did private practice and he was always, you know, he was kind of like the activist attorney. He went and, um, mm. you know, helped in the legal tent, um, at the, the pipeline, you know, when the protesters wow. were <clears throat> at the pipeline and then re relatively recently when there was the big, um, you know, amount of people coming up to the border, he went mm. down there to help at the border. And, you know, so, and he kind of did stuff like that um, my whole life. So it was kind <laughs> of, uh, you know, like, wow, like I want to be, you know, a kind of an activist like that too. And, and it was, <laughs> I mean, when I was in college, I, I considered going to law school um, because I knew it would be a way to, you know, help people. And that was my main thing that I wanted to do um, was help people and be able to make a comfortable living while I was helping people in important ways, you know. Mm -hmm. So I would say it was probably about uh, my undergrad, I kind of considered it, but then I ended up just working for a while. And when that kind of got, um, you know, I was like, I need to do more. Like I'm not doing those things that I wanted to do. <laughs> so I'm going to go back to law school. So that's, that's <laughs> what I did. <clears throat> what did your dad say when you said, Hey dad, you know, I'm thinking of going to law school. What did he have to say about that? I, he was excited, you know, I think, um, yeah, he was excited and he didn't <laughs> give me any of the warnings that I should have received <laughs> prior to law school. Um, but yeah, I think he was, he was excited and he was, you know, proud that that was something that I wanted to pursue. And, you know, throughout law school, I mean, I talked to my dad every single day, like not even an exaggeration. Like we talked every single day because it was, you know, he was kind of that support during, during my law school um, career. And I think also he liked to do, you know, I think he liked to <laughs> kind of be the one to like give me advice and, um, you know, maybe reliving his, his time as a law student a little bit. So, yeah. In law school, is there like a program system where, oh, I'm going to go into a criminal law program? Or is there just like a blanket structure for everybody and then you pick after you graduate? So they have, um, at least at my school, they have um, a set of classes that you have to take. Um, and I, and it mm. takes the first year. Um, and then I think some in the second year as well, but then from there, so those include things like, um, criminal law, civil procedure, a, um, there's a, like a writing, a legal writing class, mm. um, you know, things like that. And then afterwards, and I, they call those the bar required courses. Oh, okay. And, um, and then after that, they have bar recommended courses that you can take kind of once you're able to start choosing what classes you want to take. And 
what from your experience or from the experience of everybody around you at, at school as well, what was the most difficult area to study? Was there some notoriously difficult um, uh, subject? I don't know, constitutional law? I, I, I don't know what. Or was it really just, it just depended on your personality, what was difficult and what was easy? I think that I can't think of like a notoriously difficult class. I think a lot of times it has to do with maybe the professor as well. Um, for, mm. you know, for me, an example of a really difficult class was evidence. And part of that mm. was the professor. Um, I, you know, <laughs> so, you know, and then another, I'm thinking another really difficult class was criminal procedure. So that's things like, um, you know, like how, like, um, search, search and seizure and things like that. Mm. Not necessarily, um, criminal laws, but like, yeah, how, how like cops are able to interact with people and, you know, things like that. And that class was pretty difficult just because there's the, the structure of a lot of the way a lot of these classes goes is that they teach you how it started. And then, so you're learning all these laws and then it's like, but today this is how it is. So <laughs> it's it's hard to kind of like keep on top of like, um, you know, but they'll test you on everything and the, um, you know, the testing is pretty difficult as well because it's your only grade is the <laughs> final. So. Yeah, it sounds like uh, just a quant. I mean, I'm sure it's complex and difficult to understand mm -hmm. at, at times, too, but it sounds like a quantity problem. There's just so much to know. Uh, yeah, I think, um, like you said, definitely there were things that, yeah, conceptually were a little difficult to understand. But, yeah, the amount of information that and that was one of the things that was so different from undergrad was that, you know, in undergrad, you have papers and and, you know, a midterm and a final and different projects throughout the year that are graded where mm. you're studying one subject the whole semester and then you're having to remember all of that for one test that counts for your entire <laughs> grade. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So during your, uh, you might have taken this in undergraduate um, and, and I believe you, you were a history major, right? You got a history degree. Yes. So in, so not, Counting undergrad, does law school um, provide or require any philosophy or logic courses? No. I mean, I would say the logic is kind of just uh, woven into each subject mm. area, but the way that they go back in the history of the law kind of, you know, so I guess that is, um, you know, the hmm. philosophy side of it, I guess, um, because it'll say like, this is how, you know, for example, in a real property class, they go and talk about how you had to use, you had to like, 
put a spear in a whale when you were whale hunting <laughs> and that was the that was how you claimed it to be your property like obviously that's not relevant nowadays really i mean it is in some ways i guess but we're learning these like old cases that um yeah do you consider yourself sort of uh, an egghead in the sense that you value the foundations of the law you practice or you know is it just um do you not really um care about you know what socrates said you just practice law as it is today i think it's interesting to me because i am interested in history um but i wouldn't say that it's like you know i'm going to go back and to give an example to a client that i'm going to go back and like <laughs> quote socrates or something you know what i mean yeah. But um but yeah it is interesting to me the the history of things cuz sometimes it's really silly stuff that you know like the whale thing for example so i think it's kind of fun to study that part about it um and you know and i do think that things you know history i think is really important because if we don't know history then we might make the same mistakes that we made in the past. And, um, you know, we all know that a lot of bad things have happened in the past. And <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that, yes, it is important to um, know the history of things in general. So you were uh, describing, you've described a couple things uh, from the program you were in and just law school in general. Um, I was looking, um, I was just curious about the bar exam. I, I've had a couple of friends take it and, you know, pop culture tells us how hard and difficult it is. Um, so I was curious if you could just in, simply, you, you obviously you don't have to go into detail, but can you just tell us a little about the content areas that are on the bar exam? just what some of them are and what, what is the exam structure like? What are you actually having to do on the exam? Okay. So, um, the areas of law that you could potentially be tested on is, um, business association, civil procedure, evidence, uh, professional responsibility, property, torts, wills and trusts, uh, constitutional law in California, you have to know community property. Um, so it's kind of, you know, <laughs> all, all, a bunch of different areas that you need to know. And that was one of the things, you know, when I was in school, I, um, I even took the bar recommended courses because I didn't want to go into studying for the bar never having any sort of, uh, you know, basic foundation of an area, you know, because for example, I'm, I'm trying to think of, um, like wills and trusts wasn't a required course in school, but I took it because I knew that it was going to be tested on the bar exam. So there were some people that I studied with that had, that was their first time studying and, you know, that that topic and I didn't want to be in that position. A witness sees a murder in the park 
and is called to testify in the criminal case. Can the defense attorney ask her on cross-examination about her habit of feeding the pigeons? The defense knows that she was cited several times for illegally feeding the pigeons. Defense counsel tries to ask, you have a long-time habit of feeding the pigeons, don't you? You have, in fact, been ticketed several times for feeding pigeons, haven't you? And yet you persisted in doing it. Isn't that so? Will the trial court likely allow the witness to be questioned on these matters? So what's your reaction to that? What, what are you thinking about with a problem like that? So my immediate thought is this is a criminal and or evidence question. So that mm. if I was, you know, taking the test, the first thing I do is identify the area that it is trying to test on. So for me, a witness sees a murder, okay, criminal law, um, called <laughs> to testify, okay, so there's probably going to be evidence. And then when you get to the, you know, last question of will the trial court likely allow the witness to continue to be questioned on these matters, that to me is like, okay, it's an evidence question. They're, mm. you know, they're asking, can the defense counsel even do this? Um, so, and, you know, if, if I was taking this, I would be like underlining and highlighting and, you know, <laughs> certain, certain facts that I think are pertinent to answering this question. What would the advantage be for the defense to even question along that line, to question this witness, um, along those lines of her, I guess, perhaps, I don't know what you would call it, uh, criminal, uh, uh, history. I mean, what, what's the advantage to getting an answer to those questions the defense was um, asking? It could be to um, call into question her character. Um, you know, that's a lot of times that's what the opposing counsel in any situation is trying to do when they have a witness on the stand. They want to show, well, like, you know, this person illegally feeds pigeons, so they might be a bad person. <laughs> you know, like, it's kind of a silly example because, mm. you know, pigeons, feeding pigeons, even though it's maybe illegal, it doesn't, most people might not think of it as being, like, this horrendous act <laughs> or anything. So, uh, so I guess uh, I don't have the answer. What would you say? Will the trial court likely allow the witness to be questioned on these matters? What do you think? I, you know, it's so one of the basic foundations to getting any evidence in is relevance. And while I guess mm. it could be argued that like if I was going to analyze this and say, and I might analyze both sides to the argument, um, you know, mm -hmm. I would I would say like this doesn't seem relevant. She's feeding pigeons. How is that? <laughs> how is her being cited for um, <laughs> feeding pigeons relevant? Um, but then I guess you know, on the opposite side, you could say. Um, you know, like what we were just talking about, I guess, like they could make the argument that, well, it is relevant because if she's, you know, not a good person or whatever, um, then, you know, then she shouldn't be able to testify on this. And 
The other thought process I had as well is that maybe they're trying to argue that um, she couldn't have fully witnessed the murder if she was distracted by feeding the pigeons. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that was, you know, who knows? I I don't know what the answer to this is, but, you know, (laughs) that could potentially be another argument. (laughs) And see, what blows my mind about it is that, um, which I appreciate your, your interpretation and analysis and the process you just outlined. But what blows my mind is that you have to do that 200 times because the exam has 200 questions. And it's just that's like I told you, I mean, God, I read three questions and I was already tired. I I don't know how. I mean, God, it must be physically taxing and intellectually taxing to sit you know, in a hard chair for, I don't know, six hours, whatever it is, and run through that process 200 times. Um, Yeah. And uh, you and you passed on the first time. What was your study regime like? I mean, how I guess. Yeah. How, how did you pass it the first time? How do you pass the bar exam? It was a very difficult process. I <laughs> I did. Um, you know, I think the way that I studied in school helped prepare me for the discipline it took to um, study for the bar exam. Um, in school, I had a really strict schedule because I, and right away I was like, how am I going to be able to get all this stuff done? There's no, there's not enough time, you know, to do this. So I created a schedule that was six days a week, 7am to 7pm. And I, (laughs) and I had lunch, you know, there was a lunch break in there, but that was my schedule six days a week during (laughs) school. So during the bar, uh, you know, studying for the bar, I um, took a study course that the school offered through a program called Barbary. And um, they it was kind of like a class that you would go to um, and they had, you know, study books and, and things like that. And so. I would still get to, even though class didn't start until, um, I think it was eight, I would still get to the library at seven and work at, work on things. Then I would do the course and which was like an all day thing. And then I would come home and, um, make flashcards out of the lecture that we did that day. And, um, And then it got to a point where it was just like all I was doing was practice tests and looking through my flashcards, um, (laughs) just memorize, trying to memorize as much as I could. I mean, it was insane. I, I, you know, cried regularly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh, you must have had a bonfire with your um, with your uh, notes at, at the end of that thing. You know, I I didn't end up doing that, but I I would joke about how I should, and then I just didn't end up doing it. I just like I mean, I had this giant baggie full of flashcards, and um, it it was ridiculous. <laughs> It was, it was ridiculous, but yeah, no, I did end up throwing stuff away, but I should have, you know, lit it on fire and 
Do you have to continually study law, read books, and study the newest thing out? Or does the practice itself reinforce your law knowledge? I would say that maybe both of those things are true. I think that definitely you have to keep up on the law, and usually um, you're only doing it for the practice areas that you practice, um, you know, you're not expected mm-hmm. to stay on top of ev- all the changing laws. Um, so a lot of times, like, for example, with um, estate planning, I have to keep up on the trusts and estate laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and wow. so I'm, I, I actually get an email that, um, you know, I'm on an email list that'll send us a, you know, new case update. And so, you know, there's ways to stay on top of it. Um, and then, yeah, when you're actually practicing, you're still researching and, you know, cause you don't know all the case laws. And then when it becomes, mm. you know, California specific and, you know, so yeah, you do. And then, and so, yeah, when you're practicing, you just kind of, it just kind of becomes part of your practice to do that. Why? I, I don't know that you can answer this because it's probably one of those uh, eight wonders of the world kind of question. But what is up with legal legalese? You know, so not only having to know everything, but having to understand why is law so the opposite of straightforwardness? I feel like when you read something it like there's all these there's like multi multisyllabic words that don't mean anything to the average person. Why is legal speak and legalese and just the the text? Why is it so difficult and complex? Um, my honest, complete honest answer is job security. <laughs> I think that I think that um, you know, I I mean when I was in law school they were talking about how there's this movement to plain English and, you know, our professors actually taught <laughs> us how to write, um, you know, in our legal writing class, for example, how to write in plain English. And, um, and when I told my, I was, I think I was talking to my dad about it one time and he was like, Oh yeah, they've been saying that forever. So apparently since, <laughs> You know, since for a very long time, they've been talking about how we need to, you know, access to justice. And one of the ways to provide access to justice is not having legalese. But I, you know, I think that, you know, and I again, I I'm not um a hundred percent sure that that's what it is. But like, if I am Mm. to analyze the situation, I would say, because if it became (laughs) a scenario where everyone could just understand the law and how to apply it to your factual scenario, then lawyers wouldn't be needed. (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. I really like that answer. Um, so another, uh, Maybe typical legal question, something, a pop legal question, maybe you could call it. Is representing yourself um, a bad idea? Why or why not? 
I would say yes, it is a bad idea because I mean, if if you are an attorney, I still think it's a bad idea because it's always better to have someone who is kind of an outside person looking at a fact, you know, the facts of a case and be able to apply the law to it and make the particular arguments that need to be made when they don't have, um, you know, that super deep personal Mm. um connection to it and then you know if you're not an attorney i definitely think it's a bad idea to represent (laughs) yourself because of what we were just talking about that you know it's hard to you know that's why people go to school and take the bar exam because you can't just read something and know what the law says or, you know, whatever. So yeah, I don't, I don't think it's ever a good idea to represent yourself. <laughs> um, okay. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I agree. I, if I were to represent myself, it's like, where do I start? Do I open my case, my case and I start reading all the doc, you know, I don't, as an average person, as a layman, it's, you don't understand the process. You don't understand the text. You don't understand the procedure. You don't know the nuances of the system. Um, so you're just set up to fail. Um, another question. What this probably is very simple, but what is admissible evidence? So there is actually um, s- several requirements for evidence to and different requirements depending on what type of evidence it is. Um, Mm. but like what I had, uh, discussed earlier when we were talking about that sample bar question, um, the baseline for getting any evidences it evidence in is relevance. Mm. So, and then again, depending on what type of evidence, um, all of that, it, there's different things that you need to get past to be able to have evidence. And, you know, for me, I, I'm just speaking on what I remember from studying evidence because I haven't Mm -hmm. done anything where, um, you know, I, I haven't done like, um, a trial where I'm trying to get evidence. in. So in practice, Mm -hmm. um, but yes. So, I I can say the baseline is relevance. I don't know. Is admissible evidence something that you do like in civil law too? Or is that more of like a staple of uh, criminal law? No, there's evidence that is that you do for um, civil law as well. Um, I think that and then there's different rules for that too. (laughs) So, you know, there's all kinds of... um, you know, I would say it's it's kind of difficult to answer uh, the the harmful and helpful evidence mm. aspect because it could be it depends on and it depends is the lawyer answer just 
So you're aware if you ask, if you ever ask a question to a lawyer, they will say it depends. And it's something that like <laughs> you learn in law school, because if you go to ask a professor, they'll say, oh, well, it depends. And it kind of becomes this joke because it really does depend <laughs> because you have to, you know, depending on the facts and depending on. Um, the law and, you know, all this stuff, there are these, all these factors that play into it that could change how you might respond to a mm. question like that. Um, this question may sound offensive and, and you, you must have read it already. Um, so I don't, how can I say this? I don't mean it to be cutting uh, when I ask this. So, do lawyers and, and I know you're not uh, you're not like a criminal lawyer, but do lawyers in a courtroom really believe what they are saying when they're uh, defending their client or are they merely spinning a yarn that adheres to the internal logic of their position? And I say I ask that because I've watched a few criminal cases where I'm like, my God, this lawyer, sound, he just lying his pants off. I, I just don't believe anything this guy is saying. But at the same time, it adheres to some logic that makes sense. So do you think lawyers really believe what they're saying in a courtroom or do you think they're simply defending their position? I think sometimes um, it depends on the lawyer, too, because, I, you know, the the kind of the um, stereotype of like, you know, uh, an attorney that's kind of a sleaze ball or, you know, whatever. <laughs> I think that, yeah, there might be times when an attorney like that does do stuff like that. Um, but I, I think that if you have an attorney that is really, um, obviously you're advocating for your client. So, but you're not just go, I mean, personally, I wouldn't go in there and just, make something up and lie, um, I would look into what is the best way that I can advocate for my client. Okay, if this is the way that I can do it, then I'm going to do it this way and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. Um, whereas some attorneys might not, even though that's what you should be doing, some attorneys might just, you know, take on a case that they don't believe in it all and um you know and just kind of yeah I um mm. sometime last year I had gone to court um with an attorney that I worked with and there was and I was you know it was probably yeah in the very beginning of me practicing and this one attorney was um like what you said I mean they just lied and so when we got back to the office, I was like, that attorney, you know, just just straight up lied. And the, the other attorney that I was working with was like, oh, Caitlin, you're so cute because <laughs> because it's like naive to think that attorneys go in there. No, you know, just being the best attorney that they are, you know, being honest people. And I think about that all the time with um you know, people who lie on the stand and it's like, you know, but it's illegal to perjure, you know, to, to, um, and, but people do it all the time. 
So, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> so do you think, uh, is law similar to chess in that it just depends on who the better lawyer is in a case? Or do you think, no, the truth is supreme? I would say, <laughs> I was just about to say it depends. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think, yeah, a good attorney is does have a strong advantage and they might win even if they're, mm. um, you know, even if the law doesn't seem to be completely on their side, if you're able to make an awesome argument, then you might. I And I think it also probably depends on what the law is. There might be a law where it's not a cut and dry answer, or there might be a law where it is. So even if you're a really good attorney and you're trying to argue <laughs> a point that wouldn't apply at all, then you might not win. But if it's a gray area law and you're a really good attorney, then, yeah, you're probably going to win. Mm. I have just a couple more questions for you. I appreciate your time. Um, I I'm enjoying your, your responses. Um, I have one more quote to tell you. It goes, it's by Honoré de Balzac. He was a playwright and I think a novelist. He says, laws are spider webs through which the big flies pass and the little ones get caught. Do you, uh, do you think, so to me, that means that the guys, the people with the big time lawyers, they can pass through the web, no problem, but the small criminals who only have a public defender are going to be fried. Um, do you think that's how law works actually? Do you think that the big fish get to fly and the small guys get fried? Uh, definitely. I think that, you know, especially when it comes to criminal law, I know, you know, even though I don't practice criminal law, I, I really enjoy, um, you know, like true crime uh, shows and podcasts and things like that. And they're, you know, where they're talking about stuff like that all the time where it's, yeah, if you're and all kinds of things play into that. Um, but I, I don't think that I think it's more likely that, yeah, if you have a private attorney, if you have a lot of money, if, um, you know, race plays into that. I think, yeah. Mm. I, and I think it depends. Um, this, this is kind of a random example, but I've recently been watching the Scientology <laughs> docu-series that, um, mm. Leah Remini did. And in yes, those yes. cases, um, you know, for example, in those, and some of those cases were civil suits against the Church of Scientology and, if you're just like an average person who, yeah, maybe you have some money to pay a lawyer versus the Church of Scientology who has billions <laughs> of dollars to fight tooth and nail, you know. <laughs> so I think that's a good example of that, you right. know. Mm. Wow. Wow. Caitlin Rodriguez, I appreciate your time and your um, candidness. Um, I just have one more question for you. You can answer it any way you like. And um, I'll ask that you pardon my French. Who the hell are you? 
Um, you know, I'm just a, I don't even think of myself as being a lawyer. I'm just a, a woman who was born and raised in Ventura. And I just, I, my goal in life is to help people.